Please bow your heads with me as we begin this morning. Father, we pray that you would display to us and help us all to see this morning the reality that we are all slaves, either to righteousness or to sin. God, help us to see your word so clearly that we are all objects of wrath without you. Lord, we thank you for the great salvation that you have given to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you that even though all we have is Christ, it is plenty. So we pray, Lord, that as we open your word, that you would show us the great riches of it. But Lord, as we also look as the opposite, uh, at the opposite of not being in Christ, Lord, those of us who are here who don't know you, who haven't submitted to you, Father, may they realize where they are. Lord, they are an object of your judgment. God, they will be destroyed. Lord, I pray that they would submit to you. Lord, please help us as we look at Zephaniah, a difficult book. Lord, may your spirit shed light on the truths of it. Lord, the, the application for us today, and may we worship you. Lord, may you be worshipped alone in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I'd ask you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Zephaniah. We're walking through the minor prophets and... After We'll finish Zephaniah today, and after Zephaniah, we will have three minor prophets left. Three left. And so, and much of what we'll do after Zephaniah, we've, we've done prophecy and, and what we've called an eschatological hope with every minor prophet, with basically every minor prophet except a couple. Um, and that eschatological it just means in times. What, what is our hope as believers? What, what did even these people thousands of years ago, what did they hope in as believers in God? And his salvation. So we've looked at that with basically every minor prophet. And over the next several weeks, we'll be looking at more messianic hopes, more messianic prophecies that were taught through these minor prophets. And so uh, today, let's look at the book of Zephaniah. Uh, if you'll t open your bulletins and get that folded sheet of white paper out there, and that will hopefully help you even after today. I hope that'll be a service to you as you maybe study the minor prophets. You may think you're done after this, but hopefully you'll study them more after. Zephaniah, his uh, time period is between 640 to 609 BC. This may not mean a lot to you, but Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 BC, and it was occupied as recently, after 609, as 590s. Zephaniah comes and he prophesies between Nahum and Habakkuk, which we've talked about those minor prophets the last couple weeks. Let's look at the first couple verses of Zephaniah and get a little context to, to Zephaniah's ministry. The first couple verses, the first verse, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. If you notice, many of the minor prophets don't have a lot of information about that particular person. But in Zephaniah, we immediately have this genealogy. And this genealogy ends with a very important character, Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Now, why would we need to know these things about Zephaniah? 
Well, Hezekiah was a king in Judah. And so if we look at 2 Kings chapter 18, I'd invite you to go there with me. And we'll read a little bit about Hezekiah. Now what Zephaniah is doing introducing this is much like what we do even when you're younger especially. You'll talk about people that you're related to. You know, you'll kind of get in a bout with people around you and say, like, I, I'm an, this was my ancestor. And you might try to name someone who was famous. Or, or, or even when you get around people and you try to talk about uh, people that you've met before, that you had their autograph, something like that. that Zephaniah is doing this, but he's connecting himself with someone very prominent in Israel. And so look at 2 Kings chapter 18 with me. We'll read verses 1 through 7. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his fa- David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among, among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. So we see that King Hezekiah was a godly king in Judah. And so as Zephaniah connects himself to Hezekiah, he's connecting himself both with royalty and with godliness, with faithfulness. But look at the kings who came after Hezekiah, particularly Manasseh, 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Now, this is going to give us some context of what's going on in Israel in Zephaniah's time. After Hezekiah died, Manasseh would reign. And it says in chapter 21, beginning in verse 1 about Manasseh, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. You can look for baby names in in here. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nation whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, and this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. 
but they did not listen. And Manasseh led them, Manasseh led the people astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So, Zephaniah connects himself with Hezekiah, the king of royalty, the king of faithfulness to the Lord. And then Manasseh would come on the scene later and he would lead all the people astray. He would rebuild the things that Hezekiah had destroyed. And so this is the context as Zephaniah comes on the scene. While Josiah is king, and many of you are aware of Josiah, I've listed a reference for Josiah there, Josiah will eventually... do exactly what Hezekiah did, and he will destroy many of these false gods in Israel. But in a sense, it's too late for Israel. Too late for Judah. The people have gone astray. Now, let's begin with a couple of things just about Zephaniah and about this connection to Hezekiah. First, Zephaniah was connected with these upper echelons of society through Hezekiah, through his relationship. And so, He was equipped to go and speak to these people. And so as we look at the book of Zephaniah, what we'll see is he's often calling out these people who are in the higher society. These people who who have been unfaithful. These are the ones he's speaking to. And so we need to look at just the fact that God has equipped Zephaniah for this ministry. This is a very practical point. That God equips us for whatever he's called us to do. That he brings us up and he trains us for whatever he has us to do. And so Zephaniah grew up in this realm of society and was able to speak to them as one who was there. In another sense, we look at Amos, another minor prophet. Amos, it says, was a shepherd and a dresser of sycamore figs. And yet God called him as a prophet to speak to kings and to priests. And so the point we want to make here is just that God can do whatever he wants. He can use whoever he wants. And however he is bringing you up, however, whatever situations you're in, God wants to use those things in your life to teach and minister to others. This is what he did for Zephaniah. Even though Amos was in an entirely different situation, he still used Amos in the way that he desired. And so we shouldn't put limits on how God would use us. So Zephaniah, though, was one who was equipped to speak to these people. Secondly, Zephaniah was trained in a godly lineage. Zephaniah was trained under Hezekiah. He learned from these he was related to. He's a testimony to the proverb, chapter 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Zephaniah grew up being taught the ways of God. And despite all of Israel, all of Judah going astray, Zephaniah was taught to be faithful. And Zephaniah lives this out. And so these are the first just couple of uh, practical points we want to make about Zephaniah. And the questions I want to ask you, are you limiting God on how he would use you? Are you allowing God to use you in the experiences that you've had? Are you sharing those with others as a testimony to God's faithfulness and of God's wisdom? Are you being faithful with what he's taught you? And secondly, are you training up people? Are you training up children? Grandparents, are you helping children learn the ways of the Lord? Parents, are you devoted to this? Do you see this as your primary role to train up your children in the ways of the Lord? Zephaniah was a testimony of this work, of how much it meant 
And so Zephaniah, in the midst of tons of people who walk in unfaithfulness, walks in faithfulness. Let's move to the main point of the entire book. You'll see this in your notes. Zephaniah warned of God's coming judgment on Judah, which was a foreshadowing of his final judgment on the whole world. And he also told them where they could find hope. Now I want you to know as we get into the, the, the main message of Zephaniah, I don't get excited when I read through these minor prophets and read about the bodies in the street everywhere and blood and all those things. It's not a joyful thing for me to read when we've gone through these minor prophets and one after the other speaks of judgment. It's sometimes difficult. Lord, where do we find the application here? Lord, where do you want to speak to us? But I was really challenged this week and I hope you'll be challenged as well. I read this quote and I wanted to share it with you. The order of Zephaniah's message is significant. Judgment, then love. For how can we understand the wonder of saving love if we do not first face the fact of judgment and the need to be saved? Let me ask that again. How can we understand the wonder of saving love if we do not first face the fact of judgment and the need to be saved? Zephaniah shows us the reality that God's judgment is on people in their sin. And only in trusting in the Lord is their salvation. He shows us that the message of God is not just good news, but it's also bad news for those who don't trust in Him. And so I, I think, again, there's a lot of practical points here. When you share the gospel with people, you, when you go about and you're telling people, if you have the opportunity to share about your faith, do you immediately share about God's judgment on that person and their sin? <laughs> Probably not. But this is what Zephaniah is doing. You see, the good news of Jesus Christ is that we do have salvation, that God has made a way for salvation. But it's also, if you don't submit to that way, there is judgment. There is judgment. I had a friend in college that I was having the opportunity over a, a, a time period to share the gospel with him. And he was wrestling with whether this was, he was going to submit to God and trust in uh, Jesus and during that time, I realized that I had not shared with him the point that those who not, do not believe are condemned already. And so one night, it was a struggle, and, and I called him and said, look, Lord is burdening me with this, and I, I just haven't been faithful to share with you the entire message of the gospel. But if you don't believe this, you need to know that you will be judged. You will be judged. It was interesting. He thanked me. And so I want to ask you, are you being faithful with the gospel to share the entire gospel? Or are you only sharing part of it? Zephaniah teaches us to share the entire message. Let's look at what the message was. What was the judgment? What would it look like? Look at, look at chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. God says, beginning in verse 2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. The first thing we see in Zephaniah here is that the end of the world will come. The end of the world will come. There will be a day when all will be judged. There's an obsession with this, even in our culture. 
A lot of people have this idea that even sec- in the secular world that there's going to be an end to the world. Stephen, Stephen Hawking, a noted atheist scientist, he says that sooner or later the earth is going to be destroyed so we need to get to space because that's the only fa- place we'll find a way out. You see, even in secular culture, there's a sense in which something's going to happen here. There's going to be an end. But the question is, are we staying true to what that end will be? God tells us what that end will be like. First, there will be complete destruction. Verses 2 through 3 are similar to what we see in Genesis in the story of the flood. God wipes out everything. He wipes out everything. There's complete destruction. Look at verses 12 through 14 of the same chapter. God begins to speak in very specific ways. He says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. We see that the day of the Lord, this day of the end of the earth, it's complete destruction. But also we see that unless we have trusted in God's promises and trusted in Him, everything we have, we will be wiped away. Verses 12 through 13, when it talks about their goods being plundered, their houses laid waste, it reminds us of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, He who does not follow these words will be like the man who built his house on the sand. And when the storms come, that house will be washed away. You see, when we don't trust in the Lord and in His promises... Everything that we have will be washed away, and we ourselves will be destroyed as well. It reminds me of the proverb. It says that the Lord does not build the house, the builders build in vain. This is very true. This is what will happen in the end, in the day of the Lord. And so there's complete destruction. If we haven't built our lives on the wisdom of God, we'll pass away. But also, this day is very imminent, according to verse 14. The day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day is bitter. You see, this day, it may feel like a long time in coming. But when it comes, it's going to come quickly. It may seem to us like that day is never going to come. We watch and watch, we talk about it, it's near. But it feels like it's never going to come. When I was was thinking about this, I was thinking about growing up hunting and at first, you know, I had to sit in the stand with my dad, and we started out that way, and eventually I would graduate and be able to uh, sit in the stand by myself. And when I started sitting in the stand by myself, we'd have these walkie-talkies, and dad would talk to me through the walkie-talkie, and he'd say, don't fall asleep, don't fall asleep. When the deer comes, it's just going to show up. You're not even going to be able to see it coming. It's just going to come out. You'd have these openings where the deer could just come out, and you wouldn't see it coming. It'd just show up, and all of a sudden it was there. And on the first particular hunt where I had the opportunity to shoot a deer hope this doesn't offend anyone but I had the opportunity to do that and I was so tired of sitting there and dad said 30 more minutes well 30 more minutes you might see something and I was done so I got on the floor of the stand and just went to sleep I mean my head was on the seat I was laid out and I woke up and I looked out and there was a deer there and some point so I I learned go to sleep that's when it'll come but no but the the picture is that one moment it's not there and then it is And this is the way it will be with the day of the Lord. 
It's not here now, but when it comes, there's no more opportunity. You don't have another chance. When it comes, it's here, and it's judgment. It's judgment. And so the question is, have you made a decision? Because in that day, the decision's made, and you have no more opportunity. A couple of New Testament texts. John chapter 3, verse 18. And this is also defending the fact that every time they shared the gospel, when they shared the gospel in the New Testament, it was, it was rounded. It was the whole gospel that in Jesus they're in salvation, there is salvation, but apart from Jesus, there is death, there's destruction. John chapter 3, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he is not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Paul is speaking to Greeks here. People who would not have known the Jewish faith and might have particularly doubted any type of judgment to come. And he says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God will judge. The day will come. And on that day, God will destroy the evildoers. God will destroy those who don't trust in him. Let's look at the next point in verses 4 through 6. We see here that judgment is, going, is beginning with God's people. As I said earlier in the main point, God's judgment of Judah was just a foreshadowing of the judgment of the whole world. And so in verse 4 through 6, he says... I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest, along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear to Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Judgment is beginning in Judah. If you remember in the book of Amos, there was a verse there that God said, because I have chosen you of all the peoples of the, the earth, I will judge you. You see, because Judah had access to God, to who he was, they were held to greater responsibility. And that's what ha- what's happening here. They've been unfaithful, and so God will judge them. Let's look specifically at what they will be judged for. These are things. Some of these are things we've looked at in the Minor Prophets, but might go into more detail here. There was false worship. Look at verse 4. It says, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest who bow down on their roofs to the host of heavens. So they worship Baal, but they are also worshiping the stars. I thought it was very interesting as you look at, at Baal. Baal was a god of material prosperity. You see, they wanted their, their lands, their agriculture to abound more and more. And so they went to Baal thinking he could make their, their agriculture and their land grow more produce and could make them rich. God was, Baal was also a god of fertility. And so in order to get Baal's attention, they would often have all these sexual relationships hoping in front in the temple, hoping that Baal would look on them and see them. It's funny that that's so practical to today. We may not call on some God, we may not label him, but the gods today are material prosperity and sexuality. And so even though you in here may not call on some other God, your God may be in your pocket. Your God may be at home. 
And your God may be on the TV or on the computer screen. Mankind doesn't change. It's still the same things. These are the things that man struggles with, that man devotes himself to and becomes slaves to. And so there was this false worship. There was also this uh, a syncretism of blending, a, a desire to worship the Lord, but also worship other gods. It says in verse 5, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. They, they tried to do all the things in their relationship with God, but then also worship these other gods. And then in verse 6, there are those who have turned back from following the, following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Notice that this group of people, it doesn't say that they go worship some other God. They've simply neglected God. And because of this, we call it practical atheism. If you don't call on God, you don't know Him. If you don't walk with Him, study His Word and seek Him, you don't have relationship with Him. This is practical atheism. Even if you don't claim it, you're still there. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Also, Romans chapter 2, verse 6. God will render to each one according to his works. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. I hope you don't take this lightly. Sometimes we cling to grace so quickly that we... Don't look at the fact that our lives don't reflect God and that we love Him. And so what Zephaniah is saying is that these people who've tried to blend their lives with other faiths or who just don't call on God anymore but they try to associate them with, with themselves with His people, they will be judged as well. They will be judged as well. So judgment begins with His people. We've seen that this day will come. Is there any hope? Where do we find hope? Jump to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Again, Zephaniah begins with judgment. And then he gets to the opportunity for salvation to be saved. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Where do we find hope? We find it by seeking the Lord. Notice this is contrasted, verse 3, where it says, seek the Lord. It's contrasted with what we just read in chapter 1, verse 6, where it says, those who do not seek the Lord. And so this is where we find rescue, is by seeking Him, by bowing to Him. 
I want to read to you a quote that connects this fully with the New Testament. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open that you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. This is how we are saved. By bowing down to submitting ourselves to the Lord. I hope you see here that God is not a quick fix, but he's salvation. The perhaps here in verse 3. Look at the end of that verse. It says, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the Lord. It's not a lack of sureness, but it's a sense of awe. You see, people who are as God commands them to be, seek righteousness, seek humility. It's a bowing down to God and it's a, Lord, will you save me? God does not have to. But he is gracious and he will. So. Second Peter, chapter one, verse 10 through 11, I've shared this in the context of the minor prophets once before, but I want to share it again. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be a richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope you see that the biblical way of providing uh, comfort and assurance in salvation is not just saying, once saved, always saved. It's, look at your life. Does your life reflect God and the fruit of His Spirit? If it doesn't, then you might not be. If it doesn't, then you might not be. So look at your heart. Make your calling and election sure. Sureness that God has worked in your life. I've placed uh, one other point. The second point here. Judgment and hope. I've placed that in the notes. We're not going to get deep into that because of time. So the next point we want to get to is eschatological hope. The promises for God's people. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 is where we'll go here. What you see in the point that I've listed there for you is just a back and forth between judgment and hope. Some are going to be judged. Some have hope. It's that God is going to provide a remnant. But we want to go immediately deeper into what what this hope looks like for God's people. Eschatological hope, again, as we said earlier, it's just end times. It's what God has in store for his people in the future. Let's read verses 9 through 20 together. For at that time, God says, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none of them shall, shall make them afraid. None shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again 
fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes says the Lord. These are beautiful promises. One commentator tells a story that I think helps make sense of what's gone on here in this transition from judgment to this beautiful hope. He said that he went to pick out a ring for his soon-to-be fiance, future wife. And when he went, the, the jeweler began showing him several rings. And there was one particular one that was more expensive and somewhat out of his price range. But he picked out a few, and then he would bring his girlfriend, soon-to-be fiancé, along to, to pick one out. Well, when the fiance, soon-to-be fiancé came, he placed this black piece of cloth under the rings, not like he had done with him, but under the rings so that the rings would sparkle more, and the one that was more expensive in a particular place where it would really, really show out. And so what the author says is that what Zephaniah has done for us is he's given us this black and then this brightness on top of it to contrast and to show us the greatness of the hope of God that we have in him. He's shown us the judgment first, and then he shows us the hope. That contrast it. And so, what are the promises for God's people? First, renewal. Verses 9 through 13. Look at verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. God is changing speech here. There's unified worship. All people together are going to call on the name of the Lord. Well, the only other time that God changes speech is back in Genesis 11. It's that when the people are speaking to one another in one language and they decide to build this tower, the Tower of Babel. And it's at that, that point the men are trying to work together not to worship God, but to try worshiping themselves and what they can do. And so God disperses the people and disperses their languages. But God says there's going to be a day when I bring all people together and it will be a pure speech. And in one speech, instead of worshiping themselves and what they can do together, they will worship me. They will call on me. The closest thing we see to this being fulfilled is Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. When the apostles and all these come together and they're speaking these other languages that they've never spoken, or people are hearing things in their own language, and so that they can come to the gospel. They can hear the gospel. So we see people being unified in their speech for worship. This is the promise of God's people, that we will be united with people from all over the world who worship the Lord. Next, there's a holy, forgiven community. Verses 11 through 12. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst of people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Notice in the beginning of verse 11 that God says, 
you shall not be put to shame in that day because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Even the sins and the shame that came because of the sins of these people will be removed. In Romans chapter 10 verse 11, we see this promise in the gospel. The scripture says, everyone who believes in me will not be put to shame. If you look back to Genesis and the, the first sin, you'll see that when Adam and Eve sinned and then God came, the first thing that they did was hide. It was shame. It was a fear of punishment, knowing that they had done wrong. But look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. These verses are, are in your notes. In those verses it says, So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whomever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever has not been perfected in love, whoever fears has not been perfected in love, we love because he first loved us. Don't you see that in Christ, all your fears are cast away, all your shame, because all your sin is done away with? That when you come to Christ, you no longer have to be uh, fearful of what you've done, shameful of what you've done in the past. All of it is wiped away. Your slate is clean. You are cleansed and you are pure. There are so many Christians who are plagued with guilt. Guilt that causes anxiety and causes depression. I hope you know, believer, that in Christ, everything is gone. There is no need for you to feel shame. There's no need for you to feel fear. But in Christ, you are free from all of it. From everything you've done. Your guilt is gone. There is no need for you to feel shame again. And then in verse 13, the picture here is that we're back to Eden. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. The picture is a, a vulnerable animal is grazing, like a cow or a sheep uh, is in a field grazing. Have you ever seen the defense weapons of a, of a cow or a sheep grazing? They've got nothing. And so the picture is that they're in this field, but they no longer have to be fearful. They can graze freely. There's provision. They can graze without fear because there's security. And they can graze in rest that God has provided. We're back in Eden where creation is perfect. Where there's no need to have fear of anything. But there's complete trust in God. Notice here, notice here that it is God who does all of this. In verse 9 it says, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. In verse 11 I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. Verse 12. I will leave in your midst a proud a people humble and lowly. And he provides this place of rest. It is God who provides all of this. So there's this renewal. But then there's also rejoicing. Look at verses 14 through 20. 
There's rejoicing because God is in their midst. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away all your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. You see, when the Lord comes, the name here is the name that God gave to Moses when he would deliver his people from bondage in Egypt. It meant that he was a defender of his people, but that he would also destroy the wicked. He is a God of this justice, and so he destroys their enemies, and he is among them. And when God is among them, they can feel safe, they can rejoice. But there's also a response to this. Look at verse 16. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. There's something that God expects because of this. Let not your hands grow weak. There's a type of work that God's people are called to do because God is among them. There's something that's expected of them in response. In verses 9 through 20, we see what these things, in some other verses here, we'll see what these things are. First, prayer, praise, and worship. The people are to come together, as in verse 9, and call on the Lord. They're to praise Him, and then in verse 20, they'll come and they are to worship the Lord. But there's also to be holiness in their life and in their speech. Verse 13. Those who are left in Israel shall do no injustice. They shall speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. They're to trust and they're to rest. This is what we saw in verse 13, back in Eden. They shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. And in verse 14, there's rejoicing. These are your responsibilities as God's people. You're to pray You're to praise and you're to worship. You're to have holiness in your life and your speech at all times. There should not be falsehood among you. And you're to trust and you're to rest and you're to rejoice. This is what you do as God's people. Because God dwells among you and when God is among you, there should be no fear. There should be no shame. But you freely do all these things to his glory. We're going to close with verse 17. Listen to the the beauty of this verse. The Lord God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Here we see a picture of something like we see in Luke chapter 15. If you look at Luke chapter 15, you see several stories of something that was lost and the owner going to seek it out. There's a, there's a coin that's lost and a woman searches for it. And when she finds it, she rejoices. There's a sheep that's lost, just one sheep that's lost. And the owner goes and when he finally finds it, Jesus tells this as commentary on the story. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Listen to the picture of who God is. He desires to redeem. And when he redeems, he sings over you. He He makes you his child and he rejoices in who you are. Last week we saw in Habakkuk the emotions of a prophet that led him to ask, How long, O Lord? 
but this week we see our God burst out in emotive singing over his people. We're reminded of Genesis chapter 1, when God made man the pinnacle of his creation. He comes and said, let's make man in our own image. In the image of God, he created them. And when God finishes creation, he says, it's good. And ever since sin has taken hold and passed down, there has been this struggle. But in God's restoration, he rejoices over man. Do you know, child of God, that when you submit to Christ, God rejoices over you. No matter what you've done, he welcomes you and he sings over you. So no matter what you're down about, no matter what's going on in your life right now, no matter what struggle, I hope that you're comforted in this, that you're quieted by his great love for you and that he rejoices over you with singing. His love is great. His kindness is great. If you're an unbeliever in the room, if you've not submitted to God, do you know that the day will come? The day will come and you will be judged. Will you not submit to the kindness of this God? Will you not submit to His Son, the sacrifice that He's offered for you? In Him is life. In Him is joy. In Him is comfort. And all your shame will be wiped away. It matters nothing what you've done in the past. Church member, attender, whoever you are. Are you worshiping the Lord truly? Does your life reflect the truth of who God is? Remember the verse. Make your calling and election sure. It doesn't matter if someone's reminded you, you said the prayer, you're good, it's okay. It doesn't matter. Does your life look like it? Does your life look like it? This isn't to make you doubt your salvation, but it's to be sure. Have you been born again? I hope these are questions that you're asking. And I hope that you'll talk to someone about those things if you're unsure. I want to ask Stephanie to, to come forward. And we're going to have a time just to respond. Christian, I hope that you'll delight in the love of God for you. I hope that you'll sit and you'll let his love quiet you. Even if you're in deep distress, that you'll let his love just be sweet to you this morning. I hope also that you'll be reminded that in your evangelism, in your opportunity to speak the gospel, that you're called to speak all of it. That God's judgment is on those who don't believe. An unbeliever, even church member, who's doubting, I hope that you'll submit to the Lord this morning. I hope that your life will begin to reflect His ways as you're reborn, submitting to Christ. Stephanie's going to sing in a moment. If you'd like to stand, you're welcome to stand. But if you'd like to just sit and pray, this is a time where you are free to do what you need to do. And I hope you'll be obedient. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the book of Zephaniah. Thank you that it reminds us of, of all that you are. God, that you are a God, a God of justice. Lord, who demands for us to submit to you and to your ways. Lord, that you're a God who destroys evil. It is in your love that you do this. You're a God of great salvation. Lord, who sings over his children. There is no God like you. 
We praise you that in you is everything. Life and riches forevermore at your right hand. We praise you, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen.